This is the Adventure Sports Podcast brought to you by 180 TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 202, Dr. Linus Wilson, Sailing Around the World Part-Time. Hi guys, Kurt here. Hey, as a way to say thank you again to the Adventure Sports community for listening to the Adventure Sports podcast and for all the support that you give us, we are offering free community calendar announcements for the Adventure Sports community. And today's announcement is from Luke Tabersky. If you go to theultimatetriathlon.co, that's C-O, then you will see a list of places and dates when his documentary movie about his Morocco to Monaco ultimate super triathlon, um, his documentary will be screening. So let's see. Today, Digme Fitness, Richmond, London. The 22nd, Look Mum No Hands in London. The 27th, Mac Theater, Belfast. 28th, September, Bingham Hotel, Richmond, London. And it goes on. You can find all those dates. We have USA screenings the 11th of October in L.A. And there will be some Australia screenings. And we are still working on getting Luke and his documentary to Colorado while he's in the U.S. So to find information about where you can see Luke's documentary, which ought to be a fantastic movie, just go to theultimatetriathlon.co. Hello and welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Kurt Linville. I'm going to have a lot of fun today visiting with Linus Wilson. Dr. Linus Wilson is a sailor, and he was on the show earlier on episode 120, and he regaled us with lots of funny stories about a book that he's written called The Slow Boat to the Bahamas. Well, since that episode, he has written a new book, How to Sell Around the World Part-Time, And we're going to talk about that, but first, we're going to talk about sailing, about cruising in general, and I'm excited to have Linus with us again today. So Linus is a professor at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette, and he started sailing, I think, in 2015. Linus, is that right? 2010. 2010, so I was way off. And uh, he has a unique approach, I think, to getting in cruising time, and I'm excited to visit with him about that today. It's it's always a lot of fun to talk to Linus. So, Linus, welcome to the program. Thanks a lot, Kurt. You bet. It's good to have you back here. So, would you start by, again, telling us the uh, short rendition of how you got started sailing in the first place? Uh, I was, I was, I wanted to go to Europe, but I... We were probably going to go to Paris, but there was a volcano in 2010, and the flights to Europe from the United States were being canceled. So instead, we went to the Caribbean, and I was really just bored and hot because it was a power outage. And so uh, I hit the beach and stopped hitting the laptop, which I couldn't charge anyways because of the power outage. And... uh, (laughs) I, I, I saw some sailboats, and I was really interested in the sailors who were living on them because I didn't think people lived on sailboats. And uh, luckily, they at the hotel I was at, they had a little sunfish dinghy, and my wife and I went out on it, and we had a lot of fun, and we just kept on finding more ways to sail and taking sailing lessons. And eventually, we bought our own boat, and uh, we... Uh, then we sold it. We bought another boat, and then we found time to sail to the Bahamas. And this summer, we just found time to uh, sail to Cuba through the Panama Canal and across the equator. Wow, that sounds like a lot of fun. I like your story because it just sounds like that destiny had chosen this for you, right? You had to cancel your trip to Europe. The power goes out when you're in the Caribbean, and you just it's kind of like you got pushed onto a little sailboat and fell in love with it. Yeah, it's addictive. You don't. You you better not try it out. <laughs> better not do it. <laughs> yeah. 
So, Linus, people always say that a boat is a hole in the water that you throw money into. Oh, that's true, yeah. So has that been your experience? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. But it's fun. (laughs) You know what? I have long been a fan of people that go cruising. And I have a, a really dear friend who actually was on the show way back in the first couple of episodes, Terry Hassler who's been a sailor, and uh, I visit with him often. And he's currently restoring another sailboat. It seems like he he does this every few years. And it's just delightful to hear his stories or anyone's stories who wants to talk about what it's like to sail in the ocean. And I have only gone out on very short trips. I've never done anything big like you. So I'm excited to talk to you about it because I think it's such a fun topic. And for starters, what kind of a boat are you on now? I'm on an Island Packet 31. So what are the advantages and disadvantages of this boat? Oh, it's the perfect boat for me. I love it. Uh, I guess uh, the advantage is it's a full keel boat. Uh, it's pretty roomy for its uh, length on deck. Uh, and it, it's really made for cruising. It's made for taking it slow. So mm. that's what I like. So the full keel makes it a little bit more robust if you were to go aground. Am I right? You know what? The, that's true. It typically the full keels will have a little bit more pro, better protection of the rudder, but uh, it also helps with the, the directional stability. It helps with you you staying in the same direction. So we used to have a fin keel boat, uh, which was a which was quite the racing boat in its day, which was fifty years ago. Uh, but uh, it was just it was really wobbly. That you had to hold the tiller all the time. You had to hold the the wheel all the time it had a tiller though uh or it would go off course and everything would go bad and the sails would go in the wrong directions and start making a lot of noise this one you know if you don't have an autopilot and you let go of the the tiller for a while or in this case the wheel uh then it'll it'll keep its course pretty well and, and that that's awfully nice if you're going long distances oh yeah that sounds great so is it a catch or a sloop or what are we talking it some of the island packets are cutter rigged, which means they have two sails in the front. But this one is sloop rigged. Uh, we only have one sail in the front. I I that was kind of a drawback for me because we kind of wanted a cutter rig. But now that we've had it, I can't imagine going to a cutter rig because you just get a lot more deck space. So where we would have the 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 inner sail, inner foresail, um, the stay sail. We actually put the dinghy, so. <laughs> so that works. So do you have a, a Ginny on the front? Yeah, it is a pretty big Genoa. It has a pretty big bowsprit. That's the other nice thing I like about this boat is that it's relatively easy to anchor. It's easier if you have a big bowsprit to anchor because then the anchor is not going to hit the side of the boat swinging around. Hmm. Uh, and so that that's kind of nice. It also, it also gives it a little more sail area, so it's a fairly heavy boat for its size. Um, and so because it's got that bowsprit, it gives it a little more uh, power from the sail because it can have a bigger foresail. So we're talking about stuff that's common lingo among sailors, but probably new for a lot of our listeners. All of these things. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of terms, aren't there? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, it's just kind of a taste of this universe of sailing knowledge and all the little details that make a boat perform different ways. I think it's cool because it's such a fun hobby. There's so many ways to refine any boat, and all boats are designed for a specific speed and either to turn or to go straight or to go fast or to be more robust in the big waves or to, you know what I'm saying. They all have their own unique design. Yeah, I, you know, I think it's important you should think about, I mean, before you spend a lot of money on a new boat, a big new boat, that you should spend a lot of time thinking about what you want to actually use a boat for. And when we bought our first boat, we thought we wanted a racing boat. And after we had what was really a pretty robust boat already, but it was meant for kind of racing around the lake and stuff like that, we decided we wanted something that was a little more cruising oriented so you can go long distances and be more comfortable than rather than kind of go fast in light winds. Hmm. So tell me, what is it like? To be out in the middle of the ocean, um, just on your average day, let's say the weather's good, right? But what's it like just to be on a boat in the middle of the ocean, just going? 
Uh, on the average day, you're you're probably not going to see much. If you're like totally outside of land, you'll probably get uh, some dolphins. Uh, if you're fairly well offshore and heading south, then you'll probably get a a flying fish or two. Um, unfortunately, you'll see some plastics out there too. <laughs> if you're lucky, you'll see a bird, and a bird will bother you. Although they also tend to poop on the deck, so. <laughs> so the boobies will try to land on your bowsprit or something like that. <laughs> so is it peaceful? I always think, wow, you know, you're really getting away from everything when you're out in the middle of the big blue. Um, that would not be the way that I would describe it. Uh, <laughs> okay, what's your description? I would say, I'm, I always have something going on because there's a lot of different systems on the boat. So you've got the propulsion system, which is the sails or the engine. Uh, But then you have things like refrigerators and you've got batteries and lights and different charging systems like solar panels or wind generators and all the things associated with them. Or maybe you're worried about the outboard motor or something. So there's always usually something that I'm worried about and I'm working on. Uh, So I'm usually not just sitting there reading the book. The other thing is that that is hard um, is about kind of just sitting there relaxing and reading is that, you know, reading is kind of will make you seasick when you're offshore. <laughs> so um, I think typically people say that you, you kind of overcome seasickness like three days after you go offshore. And I think that's kind of consistent with my limited experience uh, I don't really get that seasick unless I don't have any seasickness medications, but I, I take a lot of precautions. So I don't try to read while I'm offshore and in the big waves. I also, uh, you know, I, I try to close my eyes when I feel like maybe motion sickness may be coming on, and I try to always sleep and keep my eyes closed when I'm in the cabin. And you know, so those are those are coping mechanisms so you don't, so I, on all our offshore passages this summer, and I think we did like four or something like that, I never got seasick. But, you know, we weren't in super awful weather. We were in pretty mild weather. But, you know, my wife got seasick and my daughter got seasick. So um, it, 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 it's a problem. Uh, my other crew member, luckily, didn't take any seasickness medications, did not get seasick. So that, that was really great. Was that your four-legged dog? Well, well, my dog, you're right. He's got good sea legs. Yeah, my <laughs> four-pound dog has really good sea legs. He doesn't get sick. Uh, but I had a crew member. Uh, his name is Stevie, and uh, you can see him on our YouTube series at Slow Boat Sailing. And uh, he he never got seasick, but we weren't we weren't in bad weather either. So I was I was pretty conservative about our weather choices. Well, Linus, I have always been landlocked. And I've done quite a bit of freshwater boating, but not sailing. And so when I first stepped on a sailboat, it was still in the marina, but there was a little wind, so it was rocking a little bit. You know, I stepped in the boat, went down into the cabin and got sick. And I stayed sick for three days. And then when I stepped off the boat and got back to solid ground, that's when I really got sick. The world was still spinning. (laughs) Oh, really? Or rocking, as the case may be. And I was like, whoa. But I I keep thinking, you know, I would probably overcome that given time to adjust, but I've never had that experience. So I think I would be a little bit nervous about it. Yeah, I would say, you know, what me and Jana have gotten, you know, after we spent some time on the boat and then we go back to land is – you know, especially when you take a shower, it feels like the it's moving, but it's it's nothing like the seasickness that you would have like when you're in the water. In the sense that you, I mean, you feel really bad if you're seasick, but when you go ashore, it's more like yeah, it's a little, it's a little weird. Was that your experience or no? No, it took me about 24 hours once we got on solid ground to not feel sick anymore. I, yeah, it was it was crazy. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I think one of the good coping mechanisms, uh, besides taking stuff like Dramamine or Scopolamine uh, or Bonine, it is to to stay on deck and and actually help with the sailing, right? So that 
that keeps you looking at the horizon. That keeps you from looking at things in the cabin. It's really, it's really the most dangerous time is if you're look, you're in the cabin, and especially if you're like reading in the cabin, then that that that'll make you more likely to to go over the edge. And so I think you know when you spend a little more time on the water, you probably will know the signs and know when to cut out certain activities, maybe. But you know, some people always get sick, and then some people don't get sick at all. But my experience is everybody will get, or eighty percent of people will get seasick at some point if they don't take some actions like take medicine uh, or are careful about watching the horizon, stuff like that. <laughs> I think that's uh, one of the reasons why catamarans have become so popular. You know, they just don't rock around as much. Yeah, you know, I, I've been, yeah, I've wondered that. Although I've been told that sometimes the motion is worse for people, so it really depends. They they do stay, uh, they don't heal over like keel boats. And I have a keel boat. I, the mono haul, if only one haul, uh, is, is going to maybe be at an angle like 15% or 20% or 25% sometimes for a long time. If you're, you're, if you're sailing close to the wind, but, uh, a, a catamaran is going to be relatively flat. But they, they have a different motion over the waves. And so I think, yeah, it would vary maybe between the person. I think some people that may not get sick on a monohull would get sick on a catamaran. So I don't think it's a it's not a cure all, but I, I you know, I like catamarans. They've got a lot more space for one thing. That's that's always nice. <laughs> so oh, yeah. I think that's I think that's the major attraction to catamarans. It feels more like you're you're not roughing it as much as a monohull. Well, you know what? We've talked about being sick and all this kind of stuff and how much work it is. I don't think we're sailing sailing. I know. We're, we're just, we're just <laughs> killing it for everybody. Uh, I know. Bentgate Mountaineering, located in Golden, Colorado, has been outfitting backcountry travelers for more than 20 years. The snow is melting and the crags are drying out. Time to break out the hiking boots, rock climbing shoes, and tents. Gear materials and designs are more evolved than ever. From the latest ultralight gear to the tried-and-true classics, Bentgate has the premier brands for climbing, hiking, and camping essentials, including Arcteryx, Hilleberg, Nemo, Western Mountaineering, and many more. Need advice on destinations, getting started, or on fine-tuning your quiver of gear? The Bentgate staff are all passionate adventurers who can give you the data and advice you need. Bentgate is also hosting numerous events and speakers this summer, so please check out their events page at bentgate.com for more information as well as to see their full product selection. So why should people consider sailing as a hobby or a lifestyle? Well, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, one of the reasons why I wrote How to Sail Around the World part-time was that, you know, I think one of the big adventure challenges open to amateurs is sailing around the world. And if you look at the numbers, there are probably more people climbing Everest every year than are sailing mm. around the world in a small sailboat. And uh, so, you know... One of the things I ask is, why is that? Why are there so few people actually, you know, seeing other countries, visiting tropical beaches? Uh, and then why are there so many people that, you know, want to climb Mount Everest and possibly lose a finger or lose their lives and, uh, you know, see dead climbers on their route? And, <laughs> no. you know, I, I, you know, I run the numbers and, and it's, it is a lot safer to be on a sailboat. So I'm a kind of, uh, numbers guy as a finance professor. Uh, but I think one of the things is it's kind of a lifestyle choice. It takes more time, right? Uh, the world is actually pretty big when you're, you're going around it at a jogging pace. Uh, and, uh, I also think people go about sail. If people want to sail around the world, they go about it the kind of the wrong way that they, they, they think that they need to, sell everything and move on to a boat but that's really expensive not just in terms of the cost of the boat it's expensive in terms of you're not earning any money and uh, i think by the time most people end up going long-term cruising uh, they just 
you know, they're, they're a little older and maybe they're not as adventurous as they were in their thirties, forties and fifties. And so, uh, uh, one of the, so one of the things I talk about with how to sail around the world part time is that you actually don't have to completely quit your business and you don't have to quit your job to do it. It's, uh, sailing's a seasonal sport and, uh, you have to take the seasons off. It's impossible not to take the seasons off because otherwise you'll be sailing into a cyclone and you don't want to do that. And it's not, it's not good for your crew and not good for your boat. So, <laughs> so what do you think the best sailing season is? Well, it varies by where you are in the world, but generally it's the winter. The winter, uh, months, the colder months of the year are the, are the, the sailing seasons in the tropics. So, uh, one of the things that kind of was an impediment to me, so I teach and I have the summers off, was I thought, if you want to, you know, do some long-distance sailing, you first need to go to the Bahamas and then go down to the Caribbean. And then at, once you do that, then maybe you would, uh, you, you'd sail around the world from there. Uh, but uh, it, I realized that, you know, the, I can't do that during the summers because it's hurricane season, right? Right. Uh, but if if I had the boat south of the equator, my summers would be the winters in the southern hemisphere, and that would be the ideal sailing season. So that was what I was trying to do this summer was to to sail south, so we got into the the different climate for our boating, so we could sail during the summers. And you made it to Equator Door, I mean Ecuador. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so you you've made it to the magic line. So you're you're ready to head into the southern hemisphere now, right? We are already in the South Pacific, although the boat is uh, uh, actually on the ground at the moment. So one of the I think ideas, if you want to do kind of long distance cruising, but you don't want to take off all the year, maybe your kids are in school, for instance, and you don't want to take them out of school, right? So I mean. It, it shouldn't be the case that just because you like to sail or cruise that you necessarily want to homeschool. And, uh, you know, one of the benefits of what we're doing is that we don't, we don't have to homeschool. We can keep Sophie in school and, uh, she just joins us during the summers whenever it works out. So, I mean, uh, I typically, I have the summers off. My wife doesn't, my wife doesn't like sailing as much as I do either. Uh, but she does. She doesn't like sailing long distances as much as I do. But uh, she she did sail through the Panama Canal, and she did uh, sail offshore and across the equator this summer. Uh, the other part, I had uh, uh, my crew member Stevie with me. So, did you have a little equator crossing celebration? We did. We did. Uh, you you probably could see that on our uh, Facebook page. Uh, uh, under one of the videos i'm gonna put it in uh the episode probably 10 of our youtube vlog series but i haven't got to it i'm only up through episode five so you can see our trip up to cuba but i haven't got all the way up to ecuador in youtube time holy cow you are one busy guy so you're a professor you have your YouTube channel. You have your Facebook page you're keeping up. You have a new podcast that you're doing. You've written multiple books now. When do you find time to sail? Uh, well, we were we were sailing all summer. so <laughs> <laughs> And we were podcasting all summer, too. So, yeah, no, it was one of the, you know, it was, I don't think anybody has ever done that, that they have uh, put out a weekly podcast uh, while cruising. Yeah, that sounds challenging for sure. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, today you can keep up with, even in Cuba, you can uh, get the internet. Uh, and, you know, I visited a town in Cuba that had more horse and buggies than had cars. So <laughs> wow. if you can do it in Cuba, you can do it anywhere, really. Well, let's let's visit a little bit about your trip. I want to know what it felt like, and I want to get into the details of all of this cruising that you did but I want to know what it felt like when you, let's see, from Cuba, you went to Providencia. So was that a big open water crossing? Yeah, I think that was about four days. So that was probably the biggest jump of the trip we had before we left Panama. And then Panama, it took us a long time to get from uh, Panama City to Ecuador. Okay, so I picked the right leg. What I wanted to know was, 
how does it feel to head off into the open ocean? You're out of sight of land, and you're you're navigating toward points unknown. Just at that point where land is starting to slip away, to me, I think I'd be like, "Wow, this is going to be really different." Um, but I don't know. I'm pretty comfortable with it. You know, I get more nervous when I'm coming coming into a marina than I do when I'm kind of going offshore. <laughs> because <laughs> there's there's more thing there's more things to hit there's less things to hit uh in the open ocean right well maybe it's kind of like the the airplane pilot coming in for a landing <laughs> that's when he has to be on his toes right it, or her toes it's exactly that he's not worried at thirty thousand feet but he's worried uh, you know at 200 feet <laughs> exactly well very cool so let's talk about your route um from new orleans to cuba that was the first big leg how did you do that? I had this idea that I would sail straight across the Gulf of Mexico, but then I wasn't uh, paying attention to what the currents were doing and the winds were doing, and so we actually had to we had to kind of go across along the coast uh, until we got to Pensacola, Florida, and then the weather turned enough so that we had some north winds and the light enough waves and light light enough winds where I felt comfortable going offshore and we went to St. Petersburg and uh, we kind of recharged our batteries and got everything ready for the next leg of the trip near my parents house in Venice, Florida. And then from Venice, Florida, we went three days offshore to the western tip of Cuba, Cabo San Antonio. Wow. So not many people have sailed to Cuba for obvious reasons. It just recently became legal again to do so as a as an American. So what can you tell us about that? Okay. So, you know, if you're thinking of traveling to Cuba, regardless of whether you're going by boat, uh, the first thing that you need to do is you need to look at the 12 categories uh, put out by the treasuries. Uh, I want to say, I can't remember the... Uh, actual acronym i can remember the acronym i can't remember what it stands for but it's ofac o-f-a-c so you google ofac cuba and you that'll come right up and they have 12 categories and you have to decide what category of permitted traveler do you fall under and then once you decide that you should write it down somewhere but you don't have to give it to the government uh and so if you want to go to cuba you can just do it right now and that changed last year that changed in 2015 and that's still in effect and there's uh all indications that the the next president whoever it is is going to continue that um and then uh then you just go if you're flying or if you're taking uh a ferry or something like that but if you're going by boat it's a little more complicated you have then you have to decide uh am i going to go for 14 days or am I going to go for longer? Am I going to go from the U.S. Uh, to Cuba back to the U.S.? Or am I going to go from the U.S. to Cuba to another country or from another country to Cuba to the U.S.? Or Anytime we're, you're not going back and forth to the U.S., then it's a little more complicated in terms of the regulations. Hmm. But if you're only going for 14 days and you're just sailing from the Keys, for example, and going to Havana... The only other thing you need to do is fill out this one or two page form called uh, CG 3300. And you can Google that. It's under the U.S. Coast Guard, USCG CG 3300. And you'll find that form right away and uh, fill it out. And it just asks you where you're leaving from, who are your crew, what is your reason, what category do you fall under to go into Cuba? And, and then they'll probably within three weeks, give you an answer back, okay, or they need some more information. And so that's that's the way if you're going by boat, uh, most people will go to Cuba. And so, you know, last year, it just, there was just an explosion of the number of people that visited Havana by boat. Wow. So what was it like? You know, we see things on television that it makes it look like Cuba was kind of stuck in time for a while with all the various embargoes and things that were going on. What was Cuba like? Uh, it is, and, and it's, and I guess it's not. I, I mean, I think in some sense it is stuck in time that, you know, you still have those horse and buggies. Uh, you're still going to see those 50 car, 50s cars. You're also going to, 
meet a lot of really friendly people. The Cubans are very outgoing and they are very interested in meeting travelers, especially if you're not going to Havana. But I think they're uh, from all I've heard, I've not been to Havana, but uh, they're probably very friendly there. But it's still a very big city. Uh, But you go into another part of Cuba, they will the Cubans will be very interested in you and genuinely interested in you. Uh, and, and that's what I found. I was kind of, when we visited Nueva Girona, which is, uh, uh, the largest city on the largest island that is not the main island of Cuba, uh, the Isla de Juventud or the Isle of You, uh, I was just, I was just freaked out because I couldn't believe they were so interested in me, although they were more interested in my four pound dog. Uh, <laughs> and, and, uh, so Super friendly. Want to talk to you? If anybody, everybody's going to tell you about their relatives in Miami and this, that, and the other, and it, and they'll want to have dinner with you, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I think that's probably the the biggest thing that I think the the Cuban people are the best ambassadors for Cuba. But I would also say that as a you know as an international traveler, I found traveling to Cuba the easiest of all our stops. Wow. That the the Cuban officials that I interacted with, you know, always treated me fairly, always worked really well. And they just, uh, they did it. I thought they did a good job, uh, maybe relative to some other ports I, I, I stopped at and it was inexpensive. Uh, I think the other thing you'll find you, you can eat out in Cuba. If you're not going to the super touristy places relatively cheaply, we were eating three or $4 dinners, full dinners all the time. And, uh, so, uh, if you if you go a little bit away from the the tourist oriented places and get to the more local places, you can you can live fairly cheaply. And that's more fun anyway, probably because that's where you you meet the real locals. That's right. So. Do you love mountains? You are not alone. Jerry Roach is well known for his extraordinary and detailed guidebook, Colorado 14ers. But did you know that Jerry has written 15 books, including guidebooks to 13ers, Indian Peaks, Rocky Mountain National Park, and more? But he has also written narratives about a lifetime of mountaineering full of Jerry's insights and humor. If you like adventure, then these books are for you. Jerry Roach's books can be purchased at his website, summitsite.com. That's S-U-M-M-I-T-S-I-G-H-T dot com, as well as on Amazon and in bookstores near you. Phoenix Multisport is a sober, active community that supports individuals who are healing from substance use disorder by providing free programs to help them maintain their sobriety. A few of these programs include CrossFit, yoga, boxing, cycling, and rock climbing, and are offered to anyone who is 48 hours clean and sober. Phoenix Multisport provides programs in Colorado, Orange County, California, and Boston, Massachusetts. For more information on this nonprofit, go to www.phoenixmultisport.org. Together, we can help individuals rise from the ashes of their addiction and heal families. I think just about every adventure traveler that we've talked to on the show, they always come around to saying it's really about the people. You think you're going to see a country or a landscape or, you know, some wonder of the world, but the bottom line is it's the people you meet along the way that make the difference. Yeah, I, I, I loved our, our visit to Cuba. We weren't there super long time. We were racing against hurricane season, so I didn't want to I didn't want to be in the middle of the Caribbean uh, late in hurricane season. So we went from Cuba to Providencia, and Providencia is pretty interesting island. If you think of a, a kind of a paradise island, Providencia is kind of that, and it's really a jewel uh, in the in the middle of the Western Caribbean. It's closer to Nicaragua than anything. It is part of Colombia, uh, but you know it's kind of like the way Hawaii is uh, to the U.S. mainland. You know, I mean. So people go there to to enjoy the place because it's just all these unspoiled reefs. 
uh, wonderful hiking. We hiked up their biggest peak, El Pico. is just the most wonderful trail I'd ever seen. You would not see a better trail, a better well-marked, well-maintained trail in any U.S. national park than mm. El Pico in Providencia. And so I'm, I'm really excited about to bring those pictures uh, on our next episode from Providence because I loved it. It's also, it kind of has a pirate history. Uh, so the pirates used to use it as a, a refuge and uh, they've got a rock formation they call Morgan's Head. And uh, if you're really adventurous, you can jump off of it. Uh, my crew member did, but I would never do that. I don't adv- advocate it, by the way. <laughs> don't tell him I said it was possible. Uh, but uh, the uh, and uh, it it has a it has an interesting history. It used to be a uh, English colony, so a fair number of people, especially if they're older, will speak fairly good English. So it, they'll kind of have a Jamaican accent, uh, but. It, Spanish is the official language, and it's, it's a Colombian territory, which also makes it a lot cheaper because the, the Colombian peso, I think, is not not that strong relative to the dollar. So we we stopped a lot of places, Cuba, um, Panama, and Ecuador, where they're really tied to the dollar, and uh, you don't get as good a deal when the, the currency is tied to the dollar, I think. Well, I have to confess, I did not know about Providencia. That's a new one for me. I, yeah, I would have never found it either. Uh, I was just looking on the map for any bit of land, right? And I and I just kept on researching it, and other sailors started telling me about it. It's got a wonderful anchorage. Uh, I thought it would be uh, deserted, but it actually had like 15 boats, and it. it was pretty full when we were there. And it's 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 just a jewel. It's it's a wonder. It's very walkable. You can of course fly there. They have a great airport uh, and. Uh, you know, it, 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 it's very tourist-oriented, too, So I mean, they, but it's not that expensive. So uh, it, I, I think it's a lot of fun. Well, from Providencia to Panama was the next leg. So how long it, did that You know, take? it's tourist-oriented, but it's not touristy. So it's, it's hard to say why, you know, that, what the difference is. But it's, it's more kind of authentic, that it's kind of an authentic place. Uh, but, it, you know, it, it's true. Its main industry is tourism, but it's, it's beautiful. Uh, after that, we went to Cologne, Panama, uh, and we we went to uh, we had some engine problems going into Panama, and uh, luckily we were able to solve those before we got right into the entrance to the Panama Canal. And then we spent a, a few weeks there, just kind of. Uh, Stevie left the boat. Uh, my wife was going to join us, and uh, kind of got the boat ready for the Panama Canal. My my original plan was to stop in Panama, but I thought Panama was kind of expensive. I didn't uh I didn't really like all the uh bureaucratic hassles they had in Panama. Uh and uh the other thing is it's not a tremendously great place to keep a boat uh if you're going to store it for a long time because it's really wet. So mold is a real big problem in Panama. We were in the jungle, which is which is interesting if the uh, if you want to explore jungles. But as you know, with your adventure travelers, that there's a lot of bugs in the jungle and they can make your life miserable. For instance, it also made it kind of isolated where we were, and so it was hard to move around. Uh, so my original plan was go to Panama, go through the Panama Canal, and haul out the boat on the the Pacific side. But I couldn't find a place on the Pacific side to do that. The only place I could find was in Ecuador, and so that's what we did. We ended up going to Ecuador. Wow, so that's a, a big additional leg on this trip. Yeah, I think it was a little like 800 miles extra. And the other problem is, you know, you, the, the, the regularity that sailors are used to is the winds come from the east in the Caribbean, right? And that's what makes it so great. you got these steady trade winds. Once you go to the Pacific, they come from the different direction. They come from the southwest. Mm. So, so, and we kind of wanted to go southwest. So that that made it more difficult. We had to tack a little. We had to use the engine a lot. Uh, and it, and we were also going through the doldrums, and the doldrums tend to have kind of unsettled weather. And uh, we hit three days of rain, and uh, we just had a long a long trip uh, against the winds. 
And uh, But we eventually made it. You know, the amazing thing about Ecuador, you think it's on the equator, it must be hot. It's not true. It's really cold there. Hmm. So we were like just super hot, 90 degrees, 100% humidity in Panama. But we go about 8 degrees south to Ecuador, which is bordered by the Humboldt Current. And it's super cool. We're wearing uh, our cold weather gear, you know, on our night watches and stuff like that. And, you know, me and Stevie uh, in the Caribbean Sea, in the Gulf of Mexico, you know, a T-shirt was too much clothes, right? Sure. So it, it just it was just such a switch. Uh, I like Ecuador. Its climate is is kind of uh, it's kind of like a desert, really. It's kind of got a desert climate, uh, and it's very low humidity, and it's pretty cool despite being on the center of the earth. You know, Ecuador is kind of a mecca for adventurers with uh, various terrain that they have, the mountains and and all that sort of thing. Um, we actually interviewed, the, I believe it was the Minister of Sports and Recreation for Ecuador, was on our show a while back, talking about all the opportunities there. Ecuador sounds like a really cool place to go. Yeah, no, I, I, I like it. And so now I'm in the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, all all the summers that I have off uh, will, be, uh, will be outside of the cyclone season. So my plan for next summer is to go to the Galapagos and to go to the Marquesas in French Polynesia and haul out the boat there. And maybe I'll spend a couple of years in French Polynesia just tooling around uh, as we make our way westward around the world. I love your approach, the idea that you can do it part-time, you can hang on to your job, you know, you can uh, make it something that you can do now instead of after you retire. I think that's a, a very smart approach to exploring the world by boat. That's cool. So you've written a book about it, How to Sell Around the World Part-Time, and that's an ebook and a paperback. Where can people get that? Uh, you get both those on Amazon. You can also get the audio album version of the book on iTunes. And, you know, for your listeners, uh, when you uh, release the podcast around, when you release the podcast, we'll make it uh, available for 99 cents on gumroad.com gumroad.com I'll give you a link to that in the show notes and so you can download the whole mp3 version on gumroad for 99 cents and the regular price which I can't affect really on iTunes is 9.99 90% off that's a deal yeah and and we'll also we'll also have a 99 cent sale for it on uh, Amazon for the ebook oh that's cool which is a tenth of the paperback price how to Sail Around the World Part-Time by Linus Wilson. And you're doing it. That's what's fun about this is that you're writing the book, but you're having the experiences at the same time. So, you know, it's going to be real timely advice. Yeah. So, I, you know, I think that uh, there's a lot of people. Uh, for one thing, you can always take a little bit of time off uh, through the Family and Medical Leave Act. So that was how Jana was able to go to the Bahamas. She didn't have summers off, but she was able to do that. Now, obviously, that you have to get your finances in, in order so that you feel like you're comfortable doing that. I also think there's a lot of business people who don't think they can sell their business or they don't think they could sell it for the right price, uh, but maybe could step away from the business for a month or two months or six months, and uh, that that would work for them. Uh, I've also met a lot of farmers kind of in that situation where they, you know, farming is seasonal too. Some seasons work for them and some seasons don't. And if you can get that time off, uh, it's, it's, uh, very doable to take your boat one way and haul it out somewhere. And it's, it's not going to sink when it's on the ground. It'll still be there. (laughs) (laughs) And you might find it's cheaper than your Marina berth right now. So, what do you get out of it? Why are you doing this? Uh, I just I love I love being on the boat. I love the challenge. You know, I, I think you know you talk to people that studied you know what makes people happy. It's not it's not having the mai tai on the beach. It's uh, it's actually having a challenge mm. that they're engaged in, and you know the the winds, the currents, the weather, the systems on the boat. It's always a challenge, but it's a challenge that is somewhat within my control if I keep on making 
good decisions and don't make bad decisions, then uh, some things are under my control and uh, some things are doable. So, so I get, I get to control whether I go out in bad weather or good weather to a certain extent. I get to control uh, if, if the systems are working or not and what, what I need to do. And it's just a challenge to get, it's an expedition and you, you, you I think that's very engaging. I love it. Well, I know that that's going to appeal to a lot of our listeners. So if they want to follow you more closely, then everything is tied somehow to this whole slow boat idea, slow boat sailing. But tell us all the URLs. How do people find you? Yeah, so I'm. Uh, my website is slowboat.com, and you go to the blog section, and you can, you can see uh, what I'm blogging on. Uh, if you want to see the podcast, I kind of do a so-called rant, I, I kind of talk about what I'm up to and what I think about uh, the sailing I'm doing or the preparations I'm doing for a little bit of that. And then I also talk to a guest. I try to talk to you know some of the most interesting sailors in the world. And that's on, uh, it's a slow boat sailing podcast. Then if you want to find me on Facebook, it's slash slow boat sailings. Or if you want to search in the search box, it's, it'll be slow boat to the Bahamas. And if you want to find me on Twitter, it's at SlowBoatSailing. And YouTube, SlowBoatSailing is the YouTube channel where you can see the pictures from our latest series, it, uh, our latest season. And, you know, what I'm trying to do with the YouTube series is to make very visually interesting videos uh, with a lot of cuts. So, for instance, my last video had 130 different frames for an eight-minute video. And, you know, I, I think that people, uh, we're, we're kind of descendants of cavemen or something like that and you know when we look at things uh, we're always looking over our shoulder for movement just in case there's a lion or tiger about ready to pounce <laughs> on us and i think it's the same thing with video that you you can't can't look at the same thing all uh, for a long time unless it's really interesting so I try to give you really interesting pictures right on so quick slideshows a nice overview of what linus is up to yeah so uh, yeah, so that's our vlog series. Cool. Well, Linus, I said at the beginning of the show, it kind of had this crazy harebrained idea that I wanted to try, and that is to have guests ask me a random question. It doesn't mean I'll answer it, but you said you had a question. So we're, we're turning the tables. What boats have you sailed on? What type of boats? <laughs> Only, oh man, yeah, not much. Only a sloop, and that was... Up, it was a 33 footer. I don't even remember the name of it now. It's been so long ago, but it was up in the San Juan Islands off, you know, British Columbia. And we did a three day trip where we went out to an island and anchored and then came back through. And it was a delightful time. Cold water sailing, though. And the weather was not ideal. We had some pretty big rollers. And like I said, I, I was sick the whole time, but I had a delightful time. I'd love to do it again. So, yeah, I am not the sailing expert, but I am kind of an armchair sailor. I read a lot of books about it, and I'd love to hear your stories. Yeah, and I, I hope to come out with Slowboat uh, to Cuba uh, before Thanksgiving. So hopefully uh, you get to your listeners, if they're interested in finding out what it's like to be in Cuba, they'll get to hear that. Uh, I'd say, you know, in terms of this, the Pacific Northwest, it, it's actually very challenging sailing that you, because of all the currents uh, that you, it really tests you. So you, you were, you had a trial by fire. So I think if maybe if you were in a more sunny location with less currents and less tides, that maybe it would go better. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mentioned my friend Terry Hassler, the sailor that was on the show and he captained for us because I didn't have enough experience to charter a boat. Right. So he captained yeah. for us, and on the way back in, I thought it was pretty wild, you know. The, the boat's leaning really far over, and the waves are splashing on the deck, and we had to reef the main. And I was like, yeah, man, this is tough stuff. And we finally got to the marina. I said, oh, man, how bad was that on a scale of 1 to 10? I'm thinking he's going to say an 8, you know. He goes, eh, 2 or a 3. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess it can get pretty darn exciting out there. Uh, I don't know. I, I mean, I interviewed – a kayaker right a professional kayaker uh, you may know him tyler brandt and i i asked him, you know uh 
what's sailing around the world like? And he was like, it's kind of slow. You know, it's, <laughs> I'm used to adrenaline and all this other stuff, but it's just you. usually, you know, they, the cliche is like, uh, you know, 0.1% of adrenaline. It's adrenaline and the rest of the time boredom. I, I'm not bored, but, you know, I guess I'm easily entertained. <laughs> well, it sounds delightful to me, and I'm really glad you're doing it, and even more so that you're out there sharing it with the rest of the world so that we can enjoy your trips, too. So thank you very much, Linus, for being back on the show, and thank you for sailing and showing us how we can do that part-time sailing around the world. That's awesome. Okay, well, thanks a lot, Curtis. You bet. And for all the listeners out there, until the next show... Get out there and have some fun and consider sailing. Could be cool. Hey, thank you again for listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast. It is you, the listeners, who make this show what it is. You rock. Thank you so much. Be sure to tell your friends about us and have fun. 